Uh, Heavenly Father, we ask that tonight you would speak to us, that you would teach us, that you'd help us uh, to hear from you, to see you in a new way, to see our situation, uh, our surroundings in a new way. Lord, that you would plant your word in our hearts and that it would bear fruit. Ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, most of you guys were born not in the 90s, but in the 2000s, in the aughts, as some of us like to call it. And, uh, but if you did grow up in the 90s, especially in the kind of uh, late 90s, um, there was a really popular book that came out like in 1999 that spawned a lot of other things. And uh, if you were in a church youth group around like 1999 to 2000, uh, among other things that you saw, uh, you probably uh, played some Halo with your uh, youth leader. You probably saw a grown man wearing a goatee because that was another important thing that happened in the late 90s, early 2000s. And you probably uh, heard a sermon illustration from a book called The Worst Case Survival, The Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. I have the uh, the popular follow-up to the Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook, the Travel Edition. Uh, and I'll just read a couple of these to you because they're really quite helpful. Uh, and the best thing about them is there's always like a random thing at the end. Uh, you know, as you see, there's these kind of steps uh, that they let you kind of just orderly think through if you're in a sticky situation, what to do. So here's uh, how to escape from the trunk of a car. Uh, it says, if you are in a trunk that has no wall separating the back seats and the trunk, try to get the seats down. Uh, number two, check for a trunk cable underneath the carpet or upholstery. So there might, you know, there might be a trunk release lever there. You, you never know. Uh, three, look for a tool in the trunk. You might have a pry bar or a screwdriver. And it says, if there is no tool, continue to step four. Here's step four. Uh, it says, dismantle the car's brake light by yanking wires and pushing or kicking the back light out. So, uh, and then the very uh, end, this is just a good thing to know. Uh, no car trunk is airtight. So the danger of suffocation in a car trunk is low. Breathe regularly. Do not panic. Panic increases the danger of your hyperventilating and passing out. So don't do that. But keep in mind, however, that on a hot day, the interior temperature of a car trunk can reach 140 degrees. So work quickly but calmly. Just important things to know. Here's another um, one with a helpful diagram. Uh, how to survive a trip uh, over a waterfall. First, take a deep breath just before going over the edge. Uh, two, go over the fall's feet first. Jump out and away from the edge of the falls just before you go over. So again, if you have the presence of mind when you're going over waterfalls to do all these things, this is what you need to be doing. Next, put your arms around your head to protect it. Start swimming immediately upon hitting the water, even before you surfaced, and swim downstream away from the falls. It is essential you avoid being trapped behind the waterfall or on the rocks underneath. 
So that that's important. There's some other good ones in here uh, that I really like. How to lose someone who's following you. Uh, how to avoid a UFO abduction. How to stop a runaway horse. So you can always borrow this from me if you find yourself in any of these situations. The most famous ridiculous illustration in these books uh, is it has to do with... Um, uh, being, if you're in the jungle and, uh, like an anaconda tries to eat you, basically it says, uh, so these anacondas, you know, they dislocate their jaw and then they try to eat you. So they're like, just lay still and let the anaconda eat you. So basically what happens is you're supposed to just lay still. And then once it gets like halfway around your body so that like your hands are inside of it, it says, take your pocket knife out and then, you know, stick the pocket knife through the side of the snake and then cut yourself out from the inside of the snake. And um, what a lot of people pointed out when this book first came out was, what if you don't have a pocket knife because you forgot to read all the way to step five where it says, take out your pocket knife and... Uh, and then you're inside and presumably you're inside the snake and you're trying to read, you know, the survival handbook and you're like, you know, with a lighter, like what? Oh, here's the next step. So it's kind of ridiculous and unhelpful um, and kind of comical. But but the idea, the reason why I think these books were helpful, uh, they weren't actually that useful because obviously you would have to memorize everything for every possible situation if you actually wanted to be prepared uh, beforehand. But the thing that people liked, I think, was feeling like, okay, if the worst thing happens, at least I feel like I'm a little bit prepared. Like if, if, if all of the wheels fall off and things get really, really bad, if all of the, you know, stuff hits the fan, I actually know what I'm, that I'm, what I'm supposed to do and I can feel a little bit prepared. Now, the way that relates to what I want to talk about tonight is there is this big chunk of the Old Testament. And it's the big chunk of the Old Testament right before the New Testament. So remember, the Old Testament uh, mostly dealt with the people of Israel, um, you know, Abraham, his children Isaac and Jacob, and then Moses, and then King David and Solomon and all the other kings of Israel. Um that's the Old Testament. And then the New Testament deals with, you know, Jesus and the apostles and, and the church and things like that. But there's this big chunk of the Old Testament. That's basically all of the prophets, guys. Uh, so like the books of Isaiah, um, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, Jeremiah, who we're going to read uh, tonight, uh, Hosea, all these other people, the people with the real weird names like Zechariah and, um, you know, Zephaniah, like all of these, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, people that, you know, have real normal names. Um, I think for a lot of us, we don't know how to understand that section of the Bible, and we don't really know what's going on in that section of the story of God's people. And so we get into it and we just kind of read it a little bit like it's got a bunch of pretty nice sayings and things like that. In fact, in the passage that we're reading tonight, uh, there's that verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, that 
gosh, maybe you had someone write on a card for you when you graduated from high school that says, I know the plans I have for you, declared the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So um, here's the deal. Um, What happens at this chapter of the story is really, really important for us to understand now because it's actually one of the seasons uh, in the history of God's people that's actually most like the season that we're in right now. It was a season of waiting. Uh, It was a season where um, they weren't yet in the home that they were promised. And there was like a future promise and they were waiting for it and there was an expectation of it, uh, but they were living in this tension between now and not yet. So to kind of catch you up on what's happened and kind of how God's people got um, found themselves in what really is the worst case scenario (laughs) that could have happened, uh, you remember God gave his promises to his people. And the promises uh, in the covenants he made said, okay, you're going to be my people. I am uh, going to send my presence with you. So you're going to become a numerous people. You're going to become a great nation. And uh, then uh, I'm going to have my presence with you. So God's presence came and uh, actually dwelled with God's people when they were wandering in the wilderness in this thing called the the tabernacle. It was like this movable temple. And then later when Solomon built this kind of permanent structure temple in Jerusalem, God's presence actually was physically there with uh, God's people. And the priests could uh, make sacrifices there at the temple. And, and so God was actually physically there. Um, well, you know, his, his, presence was there. There was this concentrated presence of God uh, in this holy city called Jerusalem. And the other promise was that God would you know, give his presence, he would make them a people, and then he would bring them into this paradise, this place, uh, the, the land of Israel. And th- the land of Israel really did become a paradise for a while until God's people, and specifically the kings, started disobeying. And we talked about this last week a little bit, that that there was so much weight um, on the king, that if the king was obedient, the people would be blessed. And if the king was disobedient, well, the people received the curse consequences of the covenant. Because you remember, every time God makes a covenant with the people, he says, okay, here are the terms. If you obey, here are all the blessings. And those are the blessings we talked about. Um, you know, the people, uh, the numerous people, God's presence and this paradise place. But then the curse consequences are basically the reversal of all those things. I'll take you out of the land. Uh, you'll be oppressed by other nations. Uh, you'll become numerous. You'll become uh, not numerous. You'll become like fewer in number. And then you'll, you'll be scattered all over the place. And my presence will actually leave the temple. And um, that's at, all those things happened during the reign of these bad kings. And the worst thing, the thing, the worst thing that happened, this was kind of the icing on this turd cake of things that happened, um, was uh, the Babylonians came and they invaded Jerusalem. And the Babylonians were this really evil nation. And what they did is they enslaved 
everyone, and then they basically committed cultural genocide. So everyone who was, um, you know, a writer or a priest or um, some kind of um, creative individual that was contributing to culture, they took all of those influential people into Babylon, and then they put all these other kind of people there in the land to try to breed the Israelites out, basically. And so you have this group of people that Jeremiah is speaking to right now uh, who are called the exiles. They're the people that have been pulled out of Jerusalem and are now living in this really evil country called Babylon. And what they're doing right now is that they're living with the consequences of covenant curses. So remember, we always said that, you know, there's blessings for obedience and then these curse consequences for disobedience. Well, the people were disobedient, the kings were disobedient, and now they're being disciplined by God for their disobedience. And so basically, like all their dreams have now been shattered. They're living in this horrible place called Babylon. And Jeremiah comes and brings this message to them. And this message is really, really surprising. Um... Because he's starting to bring this message toward the end of their exile. And it's both a kind of hopeful, forward-looking message, and then it's also a realistic kind of just let's talk nuts and bolts and talk about the present uh, status uh, message. And so basically the gist of this section and the gist of the message that I want you guys to understand in this section, and I think as we talk about it, you'll see why I wanted to talk about this while in this season of quarantine. But what what God's trying to drive home here is I want to tell you guys what to do when the worst case scenario happens. When all your dreams shatter, I want you to know that I still have a plan, I'm still with you, and I am still at work. So wherever you are, whatever happens, even if all the wheels fall off, God is saying there is still a way for my people to find blessing even from the inside of a curse. And so the two things that I want to focus on, and this, these are God's kind of two guidelines that he gives in this passage The two ways to build blessing out of a curse is, number one, that you would build your life on the true story of God's word. And then number two, that you would determine to bloom wherever God plants you. Uh, So first, uh, let's just look at this, that, that you would determine to build your life on the true story of God's word. And uh, just focus on verse eighteen, on uh, verse eight, there all the way down to fourteen. Um, basically, what's happening is God is saying, "Hey, listen, there's all these false prophets who want to tell you a story about why you're not in the place where God promised you would be. Uh, they want to tell you a false story about what's really happened." They want to f- tell you a false story about who God is, and they want to tell, tell you a false story about who you are. And you can imagine when people are suffering, right, there's all these kind of questions like, why did God actually take us out of the promised land? Why does it seem like we're becoming um, 
this enslaved people again. It's like we're back in Egypt. Um, one of the impulses of some of these uh, false prophets was to basically just deny that anything really bad was happening. So um, there was a guy that you can kind of read around this. There was a false prophet named Shemaiah. And Shemaiah was saying, oh, this isn't going to be a long captivity. We're just going to be here for a couple years. God's, you know, God's on our side. It's the bad, the bad guys are the Babylonians and you guys don't even need to worry. This isn't a big deal. And basically what God says is, hey, Jeremiah, will you tell everyone that that guy's a liar and don't listen to him? Because, and this is what Jeremiah reminds them, you are here because God told you you would be here. Like way back when God gave the law to Moses and he talked about Moses's, uh, the kings of Israel. I mean, you can look back at this. It's in uh, chapter uh, 28 and 29 of Deuteronomy. But if you look, basically what Moses said is, okay, if your king is disobedient, God's going to, you're going to lose wars to all these foreign nations. You're going to get taken out of the land. You're going to lose all these promised blessings. So everything that God warned and said really did come true. But these people were trying to act like uh, nothing bad was really happening. They were just in denial. And so what, what, what God is trying to remind them is there is actually a true story. There is actually a true interpretation of these events. And uh, with every story, you know, there's a main character, a good guy and a bad guy. And the way that some of these false prophets were trying to, to paint this story was saying, uh, man, God's people, we're basically the good guys. Like, this isn't our fault that these things have happened. And what Jeremiah is gently saying to them throughout the whole book, and what most of the prophets are saying in all of uh, this section of the Bible is they're saying, guys, actually, you are the bad guys. Like, you're here because you've been disobedient and you need to repent. And the only way blessing is going to come is through repentance. That's always been the story. And you will not be blessed if you disobey. But if you turn to God with your whole heart, if you obey him, if you follow after him, then you will find blessing again. So God is going to give you another chance. And I, I think this is really, really important Um because God says, you know, in verse 11, that kind of hopeful Hallmark card thing where he says, I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then he says, then you will call upon me and come to me and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart and I will be found by you. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and the places where I've driven you. And I will set you back in the place from which I sent you into exile. Notice what God says. He doesn't say, if you don't seek me, if you stay kind of with a divided heart, I'll bless you. He doesn't. He, he, he refuses to bless them in their rebellion. And, and I just, this is really an important thing for us to take note of. Because I think right now, um, there's all kinds of different uh, stories that we could hear uh, to try and interpret some of the hard things in our life. Not just 
you know, COVID, but, um, hard seasons, you know, in in your life, like, um, a struggle in a class or, um, you know, uh, a tough relationship with a friend or a, um, just being unhappy in school, being lonely, being sad, being frustrated. And, um, one of the things that I think it's really important to remember, guys, is that throughout the Bible, this is the way God operates, is, is he refuses to let his people be happy in their sin. So right now, if you find yourself dissatisfied, if you find yourself frustrated, if you find yourself angry or anxious, uh, I... I desperately want, and as we, you know, talk one-on-one, I I will pray, you know, that you'd feel better. Um, But if part of the story that God's writing in your life is that God is disciplining you, that he's... uh, tearing you away from the things that don't actually satisfy you, that he's deliberately causing uh, things like, you know, sex, pleasure, power, social life to frustrate you and disappoint you, then you don't want to (laughs) buck against that. Um, Sometimes God really does uh, bring sadness into our life for a reason, um, not to kind of teach us a lesson, uh, but to draw us to him. And so uh, God is saying, hey, here's the true story. Um, I'm disciplining you. And I love you. But I refuse to let you be blessed in your disobedience. So that's the true story that these people are being called to build their life on. And that story is coming from God's servants. It's coming from um, the, the preachers, the, the prophets. And so the thing that I just want to ask you guys and kind of challenge you with is in this season, who are you listening to? Like, where are the places that you're getting information from? I mean, maybe there's different news outlets, like maybe there's different blogs or different things you're reading or radio shows or podcasts. But where is Jesus in all of that? Like who in your life is helping you uh, say, this is where you are and this is where Jesus is. And maybe this is what God's doing in your life in this season. That's what you need a pastor for. So if you don't have someone like that at your home to do that with you, if you're not regularly sitting under preaching at a church where someone's saying, okay, here's your situation, here's the gospel, here's how they connect, and they're doing that in a faithful and trustworthy way because they know you, um, you know, keep coming back to RUF, uh, call us, call me, Brad, Lucy, and, and let us kind of walk through this with you. But w- one of the most helpful things, I think, for me in, in my life, uh, working with uh, pastors and just having a pastor in my life before having a counselor is having a guy talk through my story with me 
and be able to sh- show me where God was and what God was doing in all of those um, seasons. So I hope that we can have uh, that conversation uh, together. So the first thing that we have to do is we have to be kind of feeding ourselves, be kind of inputting our life with the true story that really only comes from God's word and God's appointed servants, his prophets, his pastors. Um, and so that's the first priority. Build your life on the true story. And then um, God is saying, okay, if you want to find blessing in the midst of this horrible situation, you need to decide to bloom wherever God plants you. Uh, and if you just look in verse 4 all the way to verse 7, uh, I'll show you what God's instructions are. I know that phrase, I almost cringed when I wrote that phrase down, like bloom where God plants you, because it seems, again, kind of hallmarky and cheesy. Um, but I think that the thing that's really important to remember is um, a flower, you know, doesn't have any choice about whether it gets uh, put in a beautiful garden or in like a crappy garden next to a chain link fence in the back of my yard. It just has to kind of continue to grow wherever it is in whatever conditions are given it. And you don't really have a lot of choice, frankly, about where you are right now, um, about the conditions around us. Um, and neither did God's people. They, they were in a place where they absolutely did not want to be. Uh, they were in this horrible land of Babylon, which did not worship the God of the Bible, uh, which was uh, actively oppressing God's people. I mean, imagine being, um, it would be like being a, a, a Jewish person and having to live in Berlin and work for Hitler. Like that's, that, that's the level of awfulness uh, that we're, th- that God's people are experiencing in this season. And so I, I just want you to look at the posture that God encourages his people to have towards this really ungodly, messed up, evil city that they were in, the city of, of Babylon. Uh, verse five, he says, you're going to settle down in the city. You're actually going to be here for a while. So put roots down, uh, invest in the city. Uh, you, I want you to grow and become more numerous in the city. Verse seven, um, uh, sorry, verse six, uh, you know, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage, multiply there, do not decrease. So kind of build families there. Number three, do your work at to bless and serve other people. Don't do don't use the city for yourself. Use your um, resources, use your gifts and talents to bring blessing to this city for its welfare. Uh, next, that you would seek the city's peace. Um, seek after the welfare of the city. That, that word welfare is this Jewish word shalom, which basically means everything uh, kind of economically, socially, uh, relationships, like everything getting woven together in wholeness and beauty, uh, that everything would be harmonious. And next, and this is really important, it's not just like an add-on, that you would pray for the city. 
uh, and praying, not just like praying about the city, you know, like sometimes if you're in a small group and you go, Hey, you know, so-and-so's really messed up and she's kind of, you know, sinning a lot. So we need to pray, you know, we need to pray about her. And so it's a way of kind of like otherizing the problems of someone. Uh, whereas you could say, no, Hey, I have a friend who's really hurting. I have a friend who I desperately want to be whole. And, uh, I would like to pray for her right now. That's the posture, uh, right now that, uh, what God is saying is, Hey, this, this messed up broken city of Babylon that I've called you to be in right now, you need to learn how to love it. You need to learn how to be for it. You need to learn how to leverage your emotional energy, your intellectual energy, your creative energy to see it become healthy and whole and flourishing. Now, if you just think for a second about, you know, religious people living in an unreligious society, this kind of radically positive view of engaging with a culture is actually really different from most of uh, most people's um, posture when they think about how to relate to, um, you know, some Christians call the world <laughs> around us. Um, some I, I've heard some people in uh, Southern churches call it the culture, you know. So some postures that people have is they look at the brokenness of the world and they say, well, here's what God's people are supposed to do. They're just not supposed to get their hands dirty with it. They're not supposed to get involved. So they're supposed to uh, get like kind of be separate from it. Or if they get involved, they're just supposed to kind of like take what they need and then go home. So yeah, I mean, we need the government to like do our mail and uh, kind of you know, keep the lights on. And other than that, we're, we're not going to kind of do anything. We're, we're, we're not going to get involved in elections. We're not going to run for public office. Uh, we're not going to really care about other things that are going on because we're really interested in the church. We're not really interested in the city or the community around us. Um, or, you know, another uh, posture that sometimes people take is they just look at the city and then they say, well, I just want to be exactly like all these people. So you just totally assimilate and become no different from the rest of them. Now, just think for a second, will you, about how you approach uh, the campus? I mean, we're not on campus right now, but what's your attitude towards UNCW like? Or your college campus if you're not at UNCW right now? Do you think of it primarily as a place that exists to serve you? That you're just there to kind of get stuff from it, get experiences from it, get whatever opportunities uh, it has to give you, and you just kind of like drain it dry, and then you go and live your life? Or do you think of it as a broken place that you've been called to live in and to love and to work to make better? I mean, those are two totally different postures. Uh, what about um, the place where you are right now? What about like being back in your home or, um, you know, being in your apartment or just wherever you are in this season? Do you think of it as, uh, man, I just need to kind of get what I have to get and I'm not, you know, 
not really kind of give anything back, you know, or is this a season where maybe you can, I don't know, decorate your apartment, uh, think about building some relationships with your neighbors around you, um, doing something so that the family unit around you or the neighborhood around you, uh, that you would leave it a better place than you found it. I mean, the picture here is that um, God's people are always intended to be a blessing wherever they go. The idea is that wherever God's people are, God's presence goes with them. So even as they go into exile, God is saying, you are going to make Babylon a better place. That when you leave Babylon, the Babylonians will go, I wish God's people were back here because our city was a better place when they were there. I wonder when you leave wherever you are right now, whether it's you, you know your parents' house or your apartment complex or wherever you are, will the people look back and go, Man, when those Christians lived here, when those people who loved Jesus lived here, this was a better place. This was a more wholesome place. This is a more happy place. This is a more loving place. Or they just think, you know, those people didn't care about anything except themselves. The idea here is that even if you're in a minority... Even if you're in exile, even if you're not at home, there's always something for you to do. Um, And so God is saying that he wants you to invest in the place where he's put you. And the reason why he can say that is because you're not where you are by accident. And the reason why you actually have the ability to do good and to be good and to make change where you are is because the resources that are available to you are not just yours. God himself is with you. If you belong to God, God is saying, I myself am going to give you the resources to help you be a blessing. And actually what you see in this section and in most of the prophets is this movement from God saying, I'm disciplining you. You're being judged. You're you're learning how to repent to God saying, all right, a change is going to happen. This season of discipline is going to end, and then I'm going to bring you back into the promised land, and I'm going to shower my presence on you in a way that you'd never believed before. And that's what Jeremiah 31 says. God says, what's going to happen is after these 70 years are over, I'm going to bring you back. And this is what he says. He says that I will... I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That's just saying, I make a new covenant with my people. And it won't be like the covenant that I made with their fathers when I took them out of the land of Egypt, that covenant that they broke, even though I was their husband, declared the Lord. He says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. The next week, we're going to look at this new covenant that God promises to make and this new way that God makes promises. And what we'll see is that actually God gives 
us the ability to obey, that God gives us the ability to be blessed and to seek him even in the middle of really difficult circumstances. And so wherever you are right now, I just want to encourage you, um, you are not there by accident. That God's promises have not, um, they have not just you know, somehow been thrown in the trash. That there is something that God requires of you right now. But in order to do that, you have to firmly plant yourself in his word. If you're not hearing the truth, you, there's no way that you're going to know uh, how to obey and how to grow and how to learn what God will have you learn. So you have to be planted in the truth and you have to be planted in the place where he's called you to be. So be fully invested there as long as you're there. Love the people around you. Uh, decide to lean on God. Um, I'll just close with this illustration. This is, um, uh, some of you uh, might know um, that a long time ago, uh, the Czech Republic uh, was a communist country. But when communism was coming down, um, the Czech Republic had one of the most unusual transitions away from communism because uh, they had what was co- they called the uh, the Velvet Revolution. So they overthrew communism, but but there was no like it was just this kind of soft transition. There wasn't any like big riots or big wars or anything like that. It was this kind of non bloody just transition. And the reason it happened is there was this this group of kind of uh, poets and playwrights and um, writers and artists, and they gathered together and they formed this alternate society within this really awful, dark communist society. Uh, And the guy at the center of it was this man named Václav Havel, and he actually won the Nobel Peace Prize. And someone asked him how this little community of people was able to change the entire culture, was to able to kind of overthrow this huge, massive, evil Soviet government. And this is what he said. He said, well, we had our parallel society. And in that parallel society, we wrote our plays and we sang our songs and we read our poems until we knew the truth so well that we could go out into the streets of the city and say, we don't believe your lies anymore. And so communism had to fall. God, in his wisdom, has given us songs to sing. He's given us stories to read. He's given us a community of people to belong to. And he said, you don't need to believe all those lies of the city around you. But you do need to love each other and you do need to love the world that I've put you in. And so rest in God Remember what's true. And let God bless you, even as you bless uh, other people. Uh, Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, would you help us to really dig into your word in this season? If we don't have habits for doing that, Lord, would you help us? And would you surround us with other people that can teach us um, how to get the truth so deep in our hearts 
that no amount of distraction or temptation could dislodge it. And Lord, would you give us your eyes to see the people around us, to see their needs, to see how we could care for them, to see how we could contribute to the culture of our campuses, of our neighborhoods, of our houses, of our apartments, that we could uh, be a blessing there. That as our community is blessed, that we would find blessing also. Lord, we ask that you would do it. In Jesus' name, amen.